Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 433, featuring Joshua Lustine, who is the founder of Lustine Entertainment Law. Yes, he is a lawyer. It's actually Joshua Lustine Esquire because of his lawyer status. It's really cool to have him on. We got this uh, based on a suggestion from someone which I think is great. Uh, loved having him on. And uh, we talked a lot about what an entertainment lawyer does. Obviously, there's a lot of things that are going on into making feature films and music and, and TV shows. And lawyers are very much necessary to make that happen. So it was really kind of interesting to see what, uh, what he had to say about that. Uh, I was very curious in terms of all the legal ramifications, especially things with the uh, the 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 strikes that are happening and of course AI technology that's going on how that's affecting everyone's work and what that means uh, for for the entertainment industry and it was very interesting to have his take on that particular th subject so really cool to have it I highly recommend if you guys uh, like this episode uh, to go back and listen to last week episodes as well which was uh, episode number 432 with Mark Simonetti. Uh, he had some very interesting thoughts about AI and uh, how it affects his work, uh, as well as episode number 411 with Meets Myers, who also has some very deep thoughts on how AI has contributed to his work. So uh, really cool to sort of see where those uh, those things land. And I really thought it was a lot of fun to have Joshua on to uh, add his take on that uh, particular subject. Um, of course, if you guys have more ideas or questions or anything else you want to add to the subject or suggestions of other people who would like to be, have on, please let us know. Labs at chaos.com is the best way to reach us, and I would look forward to hearing your suggestions. All right, we've got a couple of announcements. You can go to chaos.com for this. First one is V-Ray for Houdini up, uh, 6, update 1 is out. There's a bunch of new features in there. There is a bump to glossiness feature, which is basically balances the normals and the glossiness map effect together. This is highly effective on things like skin, uh, which makes it much smoother specular highlights. Uh, also, uh, there's um, going to be lots of new features that are added to the light decay. So go check those out in the light decay. There's enhanced procedural clouds that's been added, a bunch of work on solution including USDs and uh, faster time to first pixel, which is really cool. Uh, we've added uh, a new NVIDIA denoiser and upscaler that's been uh, in there as well. And we've also done some big enhancements on V-Ray GPU in terms of the amount of memory uh, loaded for textures, a lot more compression done in, uh, in textures, uh, memory consumption on, on GPUs, which is really cool as well. All right, again, you can find all of this out at chaos.com. In terms of events, uh, you go to chaos.com uh, chaos slash events. We've got one event coming up this month. We will be in Australia, uh, which is very exciting. We will be in Melbourne on July 13th, and we will be in Sydney on July 18th. Uh, and this will be brought to you by Digitor and Storm Effects. So we're very excited. And we'll be doing a deep dive into the ArcViz landscape. So again, you can check all of this out and register at chaos.com slash events. Now, if you guys want to know more about the podcast, of course, you can just go to our podcast page, which is chaos.com slash cggarage. If you'd like to watch us, you can always go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. And of course, you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash cggaragepodcast. Once again, if you have suggestions, don't forget to email us labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 433 with Joshua Lestine. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. All right. Well, thank you, Joshua, for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, like I was saying, it's kind of nice I, to, to have a lawyer to be able to talk to. Usually it costs me about $500 an hour to talk to a lawyer. <laughs> so hey, I appreciate, appreciate yeah. this. And it'd be really great uh, to give people a little bit of uh, a rundown of some of the things that you, you do. So as you know, I think you know that this podcast is mainly about technology and about technology that, that has been used in the entertainment industry. Uh, and it's been going on for a while. 
And obviously technology is a big part of what I want to talk to you about specifically in the legal side of things. But uh, I'm curious if you can give people who may not know what an entertainment lawyer does and, and how you got to be that person and why that became an interesting thing to a uh, career path for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like you said, Joshua Lastine of Lastine Entertainment Law. Um, we've been in business now for three years. We started our own firm in 2021. Um, we handle a lot of different deals, whether that's talent deals, negotiating for actors, writers, directors, producers to show up and be on set on camera and film. Um, we also help out with day-to-day -day development and production legal matters. So we help the guys that are the boots on the ground, the UPMs, the line producers, um, um, in their day-to-day -day capacity in securing, you know, locations, equipment rentals, transportations, um, visual effects. I do a lot of, uh, of vendor service agreements with visual effects companies, um, drones. We do a lot of drones and camera rental agreements. Um, um, so basically the day-to-day -day paperwork that's required to, to get the physical content captured um, and to, to eventually put it on screen. So, so the minute that they say green light go, um, we are kind of on the ground with the production and help facilitate and manage at least the legal and business operation side uh, of the production. So, so if creative says, hey, we need to bring in an airplane and explode an airplane on Thursday, my guys on the ground say, you know, I got five guys that have airplanes to get us here by, by Wednesday, they take that bid to finance and myself, we look over it and we look at the vendor that we want to approve, and then we go out and try to, to make that deal and negotiate with the vendor, the visual effects company, the props company, transportations, locations, you name it. So, so it's a lot of deal making. Um, it's a lot of trying to find compromise between parties who are, are more or less on the same side, at least on the side of wanting to create good product, um, wanting to make cool film, television, short form digital, music videos, whatever it is, um, um, but kind of coalescing or crowding those groups together between the creative side, the physical side, the finance legal side to make sure that like a low, uh, 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 curly, Larry and Mo, the three stooges are all aligned, clump their heads together, and let's get that final product on screen. So, so I graduated law school in 2014. I came to Hollywood in 2011. Um, I'm bum, I'm from bumfuck nowhere, born and raised, town of, uh, sorry, not sure if I can say that. Uh, <laughs> you can say that, it's fine. 500 people uh, in the middle of Iowa. Um, I, I was Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. I always knew I wanted to hop in my X-wing and kind of fly away. And it was really, you know, that initial kind of kind of introduction to storytelling movies like Star Wars, Aliens, E.T., etc., where I started to see that there's really this kind of amazing intersection between like like just turning on the TV and seeing the content as it lives. And the, the, the white collar guys that are in the suits and the towers in Hollywood negotiating deals, the blue collar guys on the ground that are getting creative and are just uh, fantastic about finding new and practical ways to, to make an image work or create a, a visual asset or a VFX piece. Um, and I just thought the blending of all of those, of all of those businesses was so cool um, that I had to come out in Hollywood and be a part of it. So, so like I said, I moved to Hollywood in 2011. Um, I got my first job uh, interning for American Idol uh, doing music licensing. Um, I interned at Marvel Studios while I was in law school. I actually got to work on the VFX asset creation deal um, for the Hulkbuster armor that appeared in, in Avengers Age of Ultron, uh, wow. the second Avengers film. Um, I was outside counsel for a period of time at a separate law firm to Amazon Studios, and I was kind of the day-to-day the -day show attorney, show wrangler for shows like uh, Man in the High Castle, which had a very heavy VFX and practical effects component, um, a lot of stunt works. Um, um, I worked on the movie Midway, uh, Roland Emmerich's Metropolis film in 2019. He's known for the big explosions and blockbuster, you know, spectacle style films. So we did a lot of visual and practical effects for that. Um, and then in 2021, I started a TV show, uh, started supervising production legal on a TV show called Echo 3, um, which just came out for Apple Plus. Um, it's kind of a military-esque show um, starring Luke Evans set in Columbia um, based on the Israeli TV series When Heroes Fly. So that one was really cool because we were 
you know, a lot of my job was was helping to transport and move fake guns, fake guns, props, military equipment, drones, uh, airplane parts, et cetera, from the United States to Colombia, getting them through customs um, and getting them to set to be filmed and then shipped back to the United States. So so that's kind of me and my job in a nutshell. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, lots, lots of deal making. Not one day is, is ever typical. All of my clients are different, but I would say all of my clients are in the business of making cool stuff. That's amazing. Uh, honestly speaking, I'm just, it's just kind of flabbergasting to hear all the things you do. Uh, I, I know that, but it is, you know, you think of a lawyer just, well, I'm just making contracts, but you're actually having to figure out how to get stuff done. It sounds almost producer like and line producer, like in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, I, I get that question a lot if I serve as a producer, and I, I would say that it's just my job to help the producers get their job done, whether that's the creative producers and in terms of hiring writers, acquiring um, um, screenplays or, or content for adaptation, IP for adaptation, whatever it is, um, helping the, the creative side get their legal ducks in a row, but then also on the physical side, there's just so much that goes into getting that final product on screen and, you know, when I started working in this business, television, TV show budgets were, were, were semi-modest, right? Like Mad Men was kind of like the, the you know big thing at the time and Breaking Bad and Nashville on ABC. Right. But we're, we're not talking the hundreds of million dollar budgets that TV shows like The Mandalorian or, or Lord of the Rings have now. Right. It's, a, it's a completely different game than what it was. And a lot of times that because of the increased price points, um, there's just so much that goes into it. You know, like a show, a Star Wars show or a Marvel show probably has so many added layers of security that that would be another component that I would have to deal with on my side to making sure that everyone's following and cooperating with security guidelines and security restrictions and that we're hiring, you know, um, Paul Blart mall cops to police the area and stuff like that. So, so yeah, it can be, you know, um, I, I've worked on $20,000 YouTube videos for hair, makeup, and, and outfits and the like. Um, and I've worked on, you know, $100 million blockbuster films, um, all of which require different tools of the trade to just, you know, like I said, we're all on the side of let's get the thing done and let's get something made and let's put cool product out to the consumer. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And uh, it's really cool to hear that. And I think, you know, a lot of people need to think about that. If they, you know, there's a lot of people, as you know, who are like, I want to make a short or I want to do this or I have a low budget film that I need to do. And they need to start thinking about how it's going to get done legally and having a, someone out, out there that can help them out and that not have to worry about it is actually really interesting as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have a, uh, you know, obviously, a, as you know, it's a more of a, this is a, there's a lot of technology that I want to talk about. And, and right now there's a lot of questions about how technology is going to change Hollywood. Um, and uh, I have a, a few things I'm interested in is, uh, first of all, um, you know, obviously right now there's a bit of a turmoil in, in Hollywood and something that I think uh, you as a lawyer may have some strong ideas or opinions. What yeah. is, how do you put yourself, how do you, how do you define exactly what's happening right now with the strike, especially the writer's strike and potentially the, the directors and, and, and actors strike as well? How do you feel that that's what, what motivated that and how did technology affect that, 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 that? decision to go on strike? Yeah, you know, I, I'm really a student of history and I like looking towards the past for, for examples and hopefully try to see where that might take us in the future. Um, if you look back to the original 2008 writer strike, which is actually when I went to college and decided that I wanted to get onto this career path of entertainment, um, right. a lot of it was, was kind of um, um, initiated by the advent of streaming. Um, you know, the, the, the transfer from physical assets, Blu-rays, VHS, um, um, regular movie ticket sales, right, ripping the theater, where eyeballs were now being driven to the streaming platforms. And I don't think anyone anticipated that they would be as successful as they were, you know, back in 2007, 2008, and then through the proliferation of, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. So back, back that, the, the 2008 writer's strike was really kind of, um, how do I say, instrumental in seeing the writing on the wall and seeing where the industry was going with the streaming. And they were able to kind of garner good protections, but even the protections and the concessions that they made in the 2008 writer strike was, was not enough to really see the how much money 
um, Hollywood would be making off the streaming. I think I, I heard a reporter a figure, and don't quote me on this because I don't remember the figures exactly, but like the, the, the net worth of Hollywood was around like five to 10 billion in the early 2000s. And now like the total generated wealth is around like 40 billion um, or something like that. So, so it's exponentially increased with the advent of streamers. More people are consuming content um, 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 than ever before. When I started working, there was like 400 new original TV shows, scripted original TV shows um, that would come out on a given year. Now it's something like 900. And this, this entry into the market and this kind of saturation of content has really done a number in terms of widening the, the, the gap between those who started out at this game, you know, in the 70s or 80s and have been playing in this town for years and years and years and those who are just, you know, kind of starting out. And so, you know, you'll have someone like um, Sydney Sweeney, who's extremely popular, one of the most it girls there is right now. And she's, you know, been on record and talk about the, the pay discrepancies in Hollywood, because when you're starting out as an actor now, you may be making twenty to thirty thousand dollars an episode, which sounds like a lot, right? But it right. used to be twenty-four episode orders. Then it was twelve episode orders. Now it's ten, sometimes six episode orders. Um, and then the guys at the top, they're they're making, you know, oh god, a million dollars an episode. You know, Five million an episode or something like that. And so the pay discrepancies are starting to become so outrageous where the guys at the tippy, tippy, tippy top are making so much and the budgets are becoming so inflated. But everyone that's kind of uh, uh, married to the success of the project on the ground, we haven't really seen substantial pay increases um, in, in my 10 years in working a Hollywood ride. I moved out here in 2011. It's been constantly a battle between you know, the, the little guy and, and, and the ever widening gap for the, 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 the elite 1%, I guess. So I think that that is really something, you know, a, this, this looking at streaming and now looking towards how disruptive AI is, how disruptive, you know, the, the advancements in streaming are, podcasts, uh, sound quality, all of these things are, are changing the medium of storytelling, right? Like how we consume, but it just means that there are more eyes and, and ears um, um, consuming content and, and the people want to partake in the rewards of that success. Um, it wasn't a thing, you know, it, 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 you maybe had uh, David Hasselhoff having Knight Rider showed off in Germany, but now, you know, the success of Stranger Things is completely worldwide. And the, the writers who write on those shows should, should, should partake in the success, not only because it's fair and equitable, but because it, if we want to, how do I say, train the next crop of A-list talent, they have to kind of go through that evolution process. Um, for writers in particular, there's kind of been this stagnation of their position within the industry. They work on one show. Those shows used to go five, six seasons. Now they go one season and they're starting back at square one within the, in another writer's room, but they haven't advanced at all in their placement. So if, if, if we as consumers want to see better content, we want better writing, we want more equitable uh, 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 treatment in, in terms of employment in Hollywood, um, we kind of have to stand and support the unions in their effort to try to, to try to make things a little bit more fair and balanced. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, obviously there's been a disruption to the whole business plan as well, right? I mean, we used to deal with syndication where a show would go on and then after it was done, they would syndicate it to other shows. And then, you know, every time you watch a rerun of Seinfeld, someone's getting paid, right? And that's not the case with streaming, right? You just get paid once and then they quote unquote own the property and they can just keep airing it for as long as they want. They don't have to pay it out. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, more or less that's true. And I think it's really kind of gotten people savvy in terms of understanding and knowing their intellectual property rights. Right. And, you know, it, it is such a thing that in Hollywood that kind of the, the, the proverbial uh, goal of, of the studios is to just own content, own IP outright. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is those who have maintained ownership of their own IP, they found creative ways to monetize it and become wildly more successful than having sold it to, to um, a proper you know, Netflix or Amazon or whatever. I'm thinking of, um, oh gosh, the, guy, the name's escaping me now, but the guy who made Ridiculousness. I know okay. that he just did a substantial deal 
to to license and relicense off all of those episodes for you know more or less syndication, um, and he retained ownership rights of those IPs. Um, so so it's getting people to be more understanding of how their intellectual property is being captured and owned. And as we've seen, or as I'm starting to see with like the influencers, the streamers, the YouTube creators, and the podcast content creators, they are keeping more ownership of their IP. Um, it's really, you know, the, the large temple IP franchises and stuff that, that are being gobbled up um, by the studios. But even still, if you look at something like a Skybound Entertainment, Rick Kirkman, um, inventor of Walking Dead, you know he maintains heavily ownership of of that company and has good say in direction of where it goes. Um, so it's it, it's you know it's one of those things where I feel like the industry is in turmoil, but we'll see things kind of cool and settle down over the next five years and as we figure out you know what is entertainment in a world of TikTok? What is entertainment in a world of AR, VR? Um, what is entertainment in a post-pandemic world now where maybe we don't want to be glued to our devices as much? Um, um, and then, yeah, as AI comes in, and kind of also, once again, reshapes and reinvents things. Yeah, I do. And and boy, there's a lot to talk about. This is amazing. Uh, hopefully we can get through all of it. I do want to get to AI, obviously, uh, as part of, you know, a company that develops a lot of technology and has been working on figuring out uh, our, uh, what, the, how we can start to well, utilize AI for the best of what's going on. What are, first of all, what are your thoughts about AI as a general thing? And then how do you feel it's going to uh, change the entertainment industry and and how do you think we need to uh, consider uh, certain aspects of it? <laughs> yeah, uh, great question. Um, you know, I can kind of think of AI like I think of global warming. It, it's not something that I'm happy about and or it's something that I would like to see change. But as a practical matter, I don't know what we can do to stop the train on its tracks as it's moving. I actually think maybe even global warming might be more manageable to stop than, than potentially AI. Um, the, the, the proverbial genie is out of the bag, so to speak, and we need to find a way to come to terms with that, adapt to that, and evolve with that as a society. As scary as that is, as scary as that sounds, um, we have to find a way to wrap our heads around it and get kind of copacetic, uh, 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 karmatic with it um, as soon as we can because it's happening fast um, and it is going to change how humans live uh, indefinitely in the same way that the light bulb and the internet did. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, uh, I, I've, I, I have been exploring massive uh, amounts of scope on, in areas and different things. I think the biggest thing that I think people can do to, to, to help them with their fear of AI is just to learn a lot more about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sit down and play with it. I, I, I teach at Los Angeles Film School. I teach to undergraduate filmmakers and entertainment entrepreneurs. And I'm probably the, the, the crazier professor on campus because I do encourage students to spend some time to learn and, and figure out and how to use AI because it's going to be, you know, utilized in every classroom, you know, five years down the road. And then, you know, in some of the things that we can we can talk about later, but there are pros to it, right? Like it wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be a thing if there wasn't some useful benefit to it. It's not, I, I guess my message isn't that it isn't, it isn't all gloom and doom, um, but it is something, you know, that is going to, to kick us in the face in a way that I don't know that, humanity is prepared for. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I do want to know a little bit about uh, your thoughts on, on, you know, obviously AI has been a subject of uh, the negotiations, especially for the writers. Obviously people are upset about Ch chat GPT doing writing. I don't think chat GPT or any of the other large language models are going away. I think there's going to be many, many, many of them. I mm -hmm. think they are going to be used in interesting and different ways. Uh, I'm not exactly sure uh, how that is, but forcing people to not use a tool that is inevitable seems a little bit challenging. I'll give you an example that I had a discussion with a friend of mine. Um, uh, back in the sixties, I guess there was a painter's union and mm -hmm. they were trying to start a law or, or make it so the union not to use rollers because it was going to make a painting too fast and they weren't going to be paid as much. Um, so what are your thoughts about how, you know, 
people are concerned about using large language models for writing purposes and how that's going to affect their job in writing. Yeah, you know, I really like that paint roller analogy. You know, I, I would say using ChatGPT and, and using the, the AI language models, um, it is going to be a long time before any of them can actually replace a intelligent screenplay writer for dramatic film, feature film or television. Sure. That being said, it, I think that it's absolutely a great tool, resource, and or, or instrument that writers can use to enhance their writing, to, to do quick research, to do quick summaries, to study data, data, data analytics, to figure out where the audience are, things of that nature that will enhance the overall screenwriting process. The problem is, is that... It, those tools will be very good and useful and successful to already established writers, people who already know and understand their craft. Right. My general fear is that that the the youth, the younger generation generation will rely too much on the technology and fundamentals of good storytelling and good writing in general may go out the window because we've found a way to kind of fast track. Right. Um, if that makes sense. And so so while the WGA, you know, they're, they're trying to see some sort of limitations or strikes or preventions of using AI within, you know, Hollywood and the writer system, I think more likely than not, it will be such a thing where it's like, okay, you can't replace a writer with AI. Because I could see a lot of low-level writing positions, a lot of staff writers and baby writer positions going out the window because, AI can do a lot of that work in terms of initially summarizing ideas, script summaries, um, collecting data and information and suggesting things, you know, working as a, I use it as a thesaurus a lot. Sometimes right. I'll use ChatGPT and I'll say, hey, give me a word that sounds like this, means this and that, and I'll just see what it can come up with to just try to brainstorm ideas. But but that's because I already know that there's something out there that exists that I can find, rather than relying on that to be my my primary you know uh, uh, brain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I I've had this argument as well as you know talking about specifically text to image models such as Midjourney or whatever. Uh, you know, a lot of the best art that I've seen created in those tools are from established artists. From established artists, <laughs> right? People that know their know their craft already. They know how to do something, yeah. So, so for me, you know, my problem is, is that there's such a widening gap between those at the top and those just starting out already. I don't want to see that gap being any widened anymore because we have kind of gotten into this place where it's like, it, 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 and I'll say this speaking as a teacher, it is hard to train the youth in 2023. It is hard to capture people's attention with the pandemics and the wars and the internet and the AIs and all that stuff. So, right. so one more distraction when writing is already a craft that I see kind of um, going by the wayside in terms of liberal art studies and stuff. You know, it's not as hands-on as a plumber or electrician or a coder. So, so it's not necessarily the, 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 what they're training the future youth to go after. Um, right. But we're still always going to need bards. Um, as, a, as a wordsmith myself, we're always going to need bards. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I saw... I saw an article the other day about a, a, a sci-fi writer who wrote 97 books in six months using ChatGPT and Midjourney, and I'm thinking it's like that's crazy, right? And then, then first time I was like, but ChatGPT, ChatGPT didn't get 97 ideas. No, <laughs> that is no, a very creative person that came up with 97 ideas, and I don't know if they're any good or not, but it's amazing. And, and that's probably the first point that I want to make about AI in general in terms, you know, you know, I got on here with some points to talk about the pros and cons of AI and whatever, because a yeah. lot of people are so focused on the negative side. I really think that, you know, looking at the positives, the democrat democratization, democratization, democracy of ideas is really the, the biggest part of this, right? As a right. busy as a busy lawyer, professional, husband, teacher, I don't have all the time in the world to flex my creative muscles the way that I would like to as an aspiring artist. Sure. Um, I, I don't have time to, to do the research and learn video editing skills and learn how to create, you know, uh, visual assets by hand. But now with all of the AI, AI out there, I can start to flex my creative muscles a little bit more. 
um, sure. and create content for myself. And, and I'm speaking, in, you know, me or anyone who has a nine to five, right? Um, it's just kind of made made creativity more democratic. Yes. Okay. Well, that's that's a very nice way of putting it. But let's talk a little bit about now. We're going to go into the the more uh, some other ethical issues about it. Let's talk about the copyright of the material and how those materials were sourced. Um, uh, what is you know from a legal perspective? I know you. I don't know how much you <laughs> you're connected to the copyright laws of things, but I'd still be curious to know. Like you know these these things are sourced from other materials, uh, and some claim that these were sourced without people's permission. Although putting stuff on the internet, you've already given up some kind of <laughs> permission of what you wanted to show. So, but let me, what are your thoughts on the copyright of this? And if someone submits a script idea or a concept art that was using AI, do they, can they maintain the ownership of that IP once that has been used? Yeah, so there are some pending lawsuits right now, especially I think as it relates to the companies like Getty Images and Stock Photo and iPhoto and stuff that have brought lawsuits because, like you said, it, 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 in in purposes of just plain and white white and black copyright law, what they're doing is taking someone else's image and repurposing and using it and making it as part of their own. So, so there is some truth in saying that there is a per se copyright violation and you don't just automatically give up your copyright rights uh, the moment you post something online. That's not exactly how it works either. However, I kind of think of it back to remember those photo mosaic things in the nineties that were really popular where you had like Yoda and as a quote, but like you looked at it really, really closely. There was like, it was like a million images of like the beach or a forest or something. And it was the entire image of Yoda. That to me is more or less what the the AI algorithms are doing. They are sourcing thousands, if not millions of of potential images and amalgamating them in a way, um, in a way that that I think, at least in my opinion, is relatively transformative. Um, um, You know, the the two aspects of, of of making a secondary creative work is a is it a derivative of that work is it a slight variation thereof in which terms it would be a copyright violation or is it transformative is it changing the work so much that it in no way kind of uh, uh, capitalizes on the the monetary value of the original work itself or maybe not even the monetary value but the creative value the creativityness of the work itself, are you are you capitalizing? Are you monetize or uh, monopolizing that? And if you're not, um, it, it, it's and it's done in such a way that it's so transformative, um, it doesn't necessarily fall under copyright infringement. So you know, so, something like a picture of the of the San Francisco Bridge. If I take a picture of the San Francisco Bridge, I may own a copyright of that image. My copyright only extends to the uniqueness in which that I've taken the image of of the San Francisco Bridge. Anyone else can go out there and take their own picture of the San Francisco Bridge, and it may look slightly similar to mine, but unless it's a one-for-one recreation of what I did and it follows whatever my artistic taste and nature was, they have a really hard chance of bringing a a copyright infringement uh, argument. That's what I see here. I see these stock image companies that have ownership of like millions and millions of image. They may have copyright protection of those specific image, but the, the, the creativity of the images, baby laughing. Mm. Minimal, um, um, such that the protection should really only lie into that image of the baby and or if it's a famous baby or like the person, you know, whatever, um, um, more so than just stock image of baby. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, there's a lawsuit and I'm hoping you can clarify what's going on with the Warhol foundation. Have you heard of this one? Oh goodness. Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> okay. Break that one down for me. <laughs> no, I, I wish I could. I wish I could. I actually just had my law firm write a memo about this last week and it's sitting in my, in my, uh, inbox. Okay. <laughs> so maybe I won't forget. Oh, yeah. so, so ask me next time. Ask me next time. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, but yeah, it's basically, it's an interesting thing because it's about Warhol, Warhol took a photograph that someone did and adapted it to create his own thing. And now the Warhol Foundation is being sued by the photographer, which may have repercussions on how 
images are sourced <laughs> yeah. and how they're used, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I got to go back and read the final decision. Okay, okay. <laughs> but uh, but there's also sort of, for example, like someone who tried to create a uh, created a comic book and used uh, a lot uh, used uh, the Midjourney for all the images, and then there was someone saying you can't necessarily use those. Uh, they can't be copyrighted because they were done with AI. But that's not that's not how they phrased it. They said you can't do it because you used a machine to do it. And they yeah. used the analogy of the monkey taking a picture of a non-human, non-human. That's I, what it was. I was just going to say it's the monkey taking a, fo a photograph case. Uh, you know, right. I can't remember exactly when the case happened, but there was the copyright infringement case where a, a photographer was suing and a, his monkey had originally taken the snapshot of the image. And the court found that because the monkey was the one that hit click on the camera, the guy who owned the monkey owned the camera didn't essentially own the copyright to that image. Um, um, it's similar in that, um, in that it, 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 there isn't going to be outright copyright protection for the straight image that an AI generator creates, but the second you take that image off of the website and start modifying and adding to it and start redoing it yourself, um, it's going to be very hard for the court to say that you're not going to have copyright protection in the, the secondary derivative aspect of taking that work off and finding a way to make it your own. I don't know how much you have to do to make it your own. To me, right. it should be just as simple as just putting your watermark on it or putting your signature on it. Um, and when you frame that into an original work of authorship, you're the copyright owner. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting you're saying, I didn't, I, I was, I would, uh, it's interesting you say that because I, obviously there's a lot of people that fear th this has been, you know, as someone who works in the creative field and, and, and deals with a lot of artists, uh, especially visual effects artists and even matte painters and concept artists. And so this is one of the most divisive <laughs> thing that if we have encountered, I mean, some people are so strongly opinionated, uh, uh, in, in either direction. Uh, mainly the people are very strongly opinionated in, in the, this is not art. This is, this is stealing, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's everyone else like, but I'm liking so many great stuff. How can you take that away from me? So uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because copyright law in this country has evolved significantly over time. And it was really even in the 1990s Mickey Mouse case that extended copyright law to kind of the level where it is today. And, and, and to, in our minds, you know, the, this sort of fundamental right of ownership of intangible property, intangible work. Um, if you think back to the 15th, 16th, 17th century, they didn't have a whole lot of intellectual property law. Uh, what, what, it, what you created as intellectual property belonged to the king. Or the church. Um, right. so, so our, our ideas of, of ownership have evolved over the last 200, 300, 400 years. Um, they're going to have to keep evolving again. Interesting. Interesting. So I was talking to uh, one of my coworkers who's a, a brilliant programmer, and he uh, writes a lot of programs that are, are used by artists. But he was thinking about, it's like, well, while you're there, ask him what he thinks about code, like code that's being written. By so because there's a lot of co-pilots and things like that, you know, a lot of people are using this. So if you write some code, and then you or you or you use an AI system to help you write some of the code, and then you create a program, can you patent that program even though it was written by another system? <laughs> so so from from I don't I don't do a whole lot in the coding and computer space per se, but sure. from my understanding, coding is protected by copyright law, so you wouldn't have to secure a patent over the over the code per se, you secure a patent over whatever the, the final software or product or whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. But but the but, the, co but the, co the code itself can qualify for copyright protection. And again, I don't think it's that dissimilar from taking an image off of Midjourney, changing one or two aspects of the code, and claiming it to be your own original work. Um, what what is protected is going to be part of your own of that whatever you've added as the creativity. Um, but it's still something that you created. Right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to lean towards, towards, you know, if you made it regardless with a computer, with a monkey, whatever, you should own it. But that ownership protection only extends as far as you owning kind of that specific thing. If, sure. if I make an image of a spaceship, I own that one spaceship. And if someone makes something similar, 
there's only a couple hundred and handful of ways to draw a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so let's 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 do a hypothetical. Let's say, for example, the courts do find that uh, specific uh, ways of gathering some of these uh, models, such as mid-journey or say stable diffusion, is more specifically what I want to work with in this example. Uh, but let's say that they say, nope, you know, images created with that system are not necessarily something that you can copyright because of we've decided some legal precedents or whatever, whatever it is. Now, Stable Diffusion itself is an open source system that a, that a lot of other programs are incorporating into their program. So people are adding them to Blender. People are adding them to other programs like that. Would the fact that they would the fact that Stable Diffusion itself has been uh, said you can't copyright that? Would that extend to anyone that uses it in other programs? That's a great question. And again, I, I don't know that there's an answer for it, at least in terms of the law right now. Um, okay. to, to, to me, it, it, it is going to create a nightmare of potential litigation if everyone has little individual bits of code and they're all being used across many different apps generated by this one thing. Um, the, the, the valuation of that protection is going to go down. Um, and right. also kind of the, the, the user license agreement that you sign up on and using that, using the software or whatever, whatever you sign on to log into um, um, whatever AI system you're using, that also is going to have some terms and conditions in place that tells you what you can and cannot do with the final product. And if I was a smart AI generating algorithm, I would have lines of text in the, in the, signing up or the, the, the registering saying that we own a part of copyright for anything that you create. Now, I don't know how enforceable that is. Um, again, I think this is all kind of way remains to be seen in the, in, in how it transpires uh, in, in actual litigation. So it sounds to me that we're in for a very interesting uh, times for, for legal <laughs> reasons that are going to be very, that, that it's going to be really hard to define who owns what anymore. Yeah, ways, right? you know, and, I, and I, again, I think that this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the evolution of the idea of, of, of copyright or intellectual proper, property protection. The United States has, has a very specific worldview as it relates to IP ownership. Um, other countries and cultures throughout time and history haven't necessarily shared, shared those same views. So, so you know, um, when we have a million... I don't know, little red riding hood apps. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with, sure. with some sort of good, good, uh, uh, hypothetical, but I can't think of one. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I get it. I get it. I think there is a, uh, what, what was the, uh, there was an analogy that someone gave that, you know, cause there's so much stuff happening right now in AI. They were saying this is kind of reminds them of the early days of the Apple, I, uh, uh, app store when okay. people started realizing they're going to make money on this. And it was like a gold rush. And yeah. then all you got was like, you know, 400 fart apps, you know, yep. <laughs> and then it wasn't until someone made like the Ubers or the real useful things that is like, Oh, that's what it, that's what it's all about. So that's the thing about AI. Right. And even with chat GPT, it only, I think goes up to like 2021 or 2022 or something right. like that. The machines are only as smart as we allow them to be. It's, it's only what we teach them to do. Sure. And you know, something like, Something like storytelling, I feel like, is a little bit more at risk of being kind of like, how do you say, taken over by AI? Because storytelling as a medium has changed. We've gone from tablets, clay, photos, moving images, AR, VR, like the medium of it's changed. But the act of storytelling itself, the, the hero's journey, that hasn't really evolved a whole lot over the last 4,000 years. The, the hero's journey is still just as beloved today as it was, you know, in Gilgamesh time. Um, but, but music, on the other hand, music, because it's like everyone is trying to get that new sound and trying to create something that no one has ever heard before. Music is a little bit different from storytelling, in my opinion. And I think that music has a lot more room to grow um, outside of AI than, than necessarily storytelling does. I think there's a lot more practical applications to using AI for storytelling than, than maybe there will be for, for creating new music in the future. Interesting. Interesting. I find it uh, uh, fascinating that, you know, uh, you know, obviously the thing about AI or spe specifically generative AI, such as ChatGPT, is that it's 
every word, the way it does it, it just predicts what the next word should be, right? So it's always predicting. So it's giving you, by definition, the most predictable results, right? Uh, which, in a sense, I feel that <laughs> over the last few decades, we have gotten the most predictable films possible. They are not very creative in some ways. So, but I'm curious to see if this is going to loosen the pickle jar of creativity in some ways, and we're going to start to get more interesting, diverse ideas from these tools. <laughs> see, I think it will only because now, like I said, with the democratization of, of creativity, little guys like me and little content creators can start really exploring their ideas in a meaningful way and start getting them out there. And so if the the big content creators want to keep up with that, they're going to have to find a way to, to indoctrinate and use that as well. If that, if that makes sense, I'm I'm thinking more of like when the internet first came out and when YouTube first came on the scene and they were just, you know, all of the creators and all of the videos that are, uh, that, that came up in the, like kind of the, the, the OG wave of YouTube, a lot of them now are the, the creators that we watch. Um, right. You know, like uh, Rick and Morty started off as a, as a junkie uh, uh, YouTube online program stuff. It, it, sure. um, I'm remembering like the old Adult Swim shows and stuff. Even going oh, back to, um, oh God, what was it? Um, remember the Ben Chicken show? The Ben Stiller show on MTV, that was before the internet and before kind of the viralness of things. But, it, you know, it was that kind of grassroots outlet that allowed Ben Stiller to get to where he is today. So so I think that the democratization of creativity, the, the lowering costs and the lower, buried, lower, lower barrier of entry for people to come into the market is going to have to make people, everyone get more creative. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting. Um, I do, I do think that your caution, your the, the cautionary tale that you tell your students of, you know, don't just rely on it right away. There is a history that you need to get through to get to be a is the important part of it. Um, I find it interesting that you, uh, uh, you also see like, Hey, you know, this is, this is here to stay. So you might as well learn how that works as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really think that there's no putting the genie back in the bottle on this one. And we have to find a way to to live with it um, and survive with it. Um, otherwise we're going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I do. It's going to seem like a little bit of a tangent, but it's not because it is still AI related. Uh, so one of my other big interests that I've have is actually digital humans. I've been doing digital human work for a long time. Um, I worked, I worked in the visual effects world for a long time. So I did uh, a lot of interesting films that way. Um, but Owning your likeness is also a big, interesting thing. So uh, there is uh, there is a uh, uh, I worked on a Tom Cruise film where we had a digital scan of him because we had to make scenes where he ended up fighting himself. And the data set that that was was highly, 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 you know, clamped down uh, and was uh, was removed from our system the minute the movie was done because I can imagine someone like Tom Cruise doesn't want to have his digital likeness, especially at that high fidelity sort of roaming all over the place. Um, but for for me, uh, I'm you know the with the advent of of what deepfakes are, uh, there's been a lot of people, especially in SAG, who have been have concerns about the copywriter owning themselves. And uh, so I'm going to, this is a little bit of a long story, but I'm going to get to, <laughs> to where I'm going. So I'm I ran, really I ran into a, <laughs> I ran into a company called Metaphysics AI and what they, they, they do some very, very good deep fakes uh, and very high quality deep fakes. And what's been interesting that they sort of showcased is that they have a lot of people uh, that are celebrities themselves that are getting themselves scanned through metaphysics and then creating a video of themselves with a deep fake of themselves on themselves and then taking that and then copywriting that because they can't necessarily copyright themselves, but they can copyright the likeness of themselves that's been done through a deep fake. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Oh goodness. Um, the second part of it kind of seems down a proverbial rabbit hole, and I don't know that they're getting the kind of protections that they want. I would have to stop and think about that. But going kind oh, of they have a lot of lawyers looking into this too. But I'm just <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm but curious. Going kind of back to your Tom Cruise question, you know, if I'm Tom Cruise right now, yeah, I'm worried and and, and kind of 
like have considerations about people using deep fakes and repurposing my likeness. But what I'm really thinking about is 20 to 30 years after I'm dead, how can I sell my likeness again to another studio such which my estate just keeps making money and we're going to go all see Mission Impossible 20, uh, 22 in the year 2055, right? right? That's actually how I think things will go down more likely is that people with high profile celebrityness, the, the Kim Kardashians, the Tom Cruises, the Will Smiths of the world, they're going to quickly sell their digital likeness to the highest bidder. And, and Disney, you're going to own Will Smith for the next 20 to 50 years, and you can put him in movies over that license period. And my kids and my grandkids are going to be watching a, a Fresh Prince 3.0 in, in 2025. I see that being more of where things are going. Than, than the average, or how do I say, I, I, there is a concern that people will take deep fakes and try to like, you know, like the Barack Obama or the Tr Donald Trump and try to get things out there and try to misappropriate them and get people sure. to believe that people are saying things like that. The, the, the information age is too fast and too quick. And I feel like most of that stuff will, you know, they might create problems in like the short, like maybe you know, 24, 48 hours, news sensation, news bubbles, news of the week type thing. Sure. But, but really it's the mom next door who's driving her kids to soccer practice that's got creepy next door neighbor that then who wants to decide to make a deep fake porn of her for their own personal enjoyment. And right. for that, I don't see the average person being able to go out and hire a firm like you're talking about to, to, to analyze and recreate and copyright their likeness. I think we're just going to need statutory legal protection. We're going to need protection. We're going to need protection at the federal level. Because this is something that I, I talk about to my classes too. You know, if I create AI Drake or I create uh, AI Ice Cube, and I say, you know what? I got AI Drake and he's got the best AI Drake version of the song sound alike. It's not Drake, 100% not Drake. I'm telling you right now, it's not Drake. It's AI Drake sound alike. Can Drake sue? Is it fraud? Are you being misrepresentative? Because usually fraud, mis misrepresentation, and other business towards business crimes uh, require an element of, of facetiousness, require an right. element of like, I am trying to fool the consumer. If I say this is AI Drake and this is not Drake, but this is the AI Drake song and it's really, really good. Mm -hmm. Drake doesn't have as much recourse. He has like It's like a Drake cover band. <laughs> it's a Drake cover band. It's a cover band. It's a parody. Um, right. it, it sounds good. Eh, sorry for Drake. Right. Interesting. Um, so, but so, I do think, let's go back to that, to that Tom Cruise analysis that we were talking about. Yes. Selling your likeness later is good, but wouldn't you want to have your likeness now so that someone else can't do, cause someone else can say, I have the best Tom Cruise deep fake and it's not owned by Tom Cruise. So you can use that one instead. And it's cheaper. <laughs> I, 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 yes, but like, if you're going to do that to somebody like Tom Cruise or Will Smith, they're going to bury you in lawsuits so much. Sure. Again, I could see being problems for like North, like, like, no, I could see this being a problem as it relates to North Korea in us or gotcha. China in us and right. external threats or, or anarchists or, you know, people posting online and trying to cause short term commotion and chaos. Um, but anyone that tries to really monetize or make profit off of, you know, a Tom Cruise look like AI it, outside of, I, I think there's an actor right now that's kind of doing it on TikTok kind of openly. Yeah, right? So that's the company that's behind metaphysics that I was telling you okay. about. And so again, are they being fraudulent if they're upfront and straight about being, Hey, this isn't Tom Cruise, but it's a Tom Cruise lookalike. Right. Um, and, or what's stopping a movie studio from going out and finding someone who looks like Tom Cruise and putting him in, in another movie. Right. It's, it's, right. It's, it's going to be something that requires outside legislation, outside laws that are, are put into effect. I don't think that there's anything within the law currently um, outside California misappropriation laws that are state. Um, I, I don't know that there's a lot of recourse at, at any legal level at this time. Okay. 
or a way to shoehorn it into a legal argument, especially if you're just being outright that you're not committing fraud. That it, we're not trying to fool anybody. This isn't Tom Cruise, but right. it sure damn looks like him, and he can do just they, all they the call him deep deep fake Tom Cruise, right? Deep fake Tom, Tom Cruise, right? right. So, so this isn't Tom Cruise, but it's the deep fake version. I don't know if you're committing fraud because you're not, uh, you know, essentially explicitly uh, explicitly showing an element to deceive it's, it's the donald trump argument if i don't know what i'm doing then it's not really wrong <laughs> <laughs> okay um all right i do want to I, I uh i'm going to take a little bit of a, as we, we're wrapping up here a little break from the ai conversation i do want to talk about how entertainment is changing entertainment oh. is changing a quite deal as you started to hint at that when you're talking about tiktok etc so do do you feel that there's uh what is Obviously, streaming was disruptive in Hollywood, but do you feel that people are underestimating the power of TikTok and of Twitch and of other streaming platforms that are going to uh, take more screen time, especially in the younger generation? So with 8 billion people on the planet, I'm inclined to think that there's an audience for everything just about. Sure. And as, as, a, as a content consumer myself, I see my content trends like, yeah, I spend more time on YouTube and TikTok and stuff, but I'm still prioritizing an hour or two out of my day to watch a film or watch a TV show, something that I want to watch. I'm still prioritizing going to the movies once a month to go see the next Star Wars or Marvel or whatever it is. I don't think that those consumer habits are going to change. It's the day-to-day -day consumption habits and trying to attract ears and eyeballs between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. That's going to be the real challenge. Um, and I don't know that, you know, Hollywood or like, yeah, television kind of plays between 9 and 5, but that's not their primary time for, for viewer consumption, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And how does that fit? I mean, obviously, but obviously there is a lot more YouTube, right? We are, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't watching that much YouTube and now we're watching a lot more YouTube. In fact, there's been an argument that more YouTube is being consumed than any other network individually. It, it's uh, true. It's true. As, as a consumer, I look at my phone every day and I've watched two to three hours of YouTube and I'll watch one hour of Netflix or, or right. sorry, one hour of, of, traditional content and then that is broken up between maybe one night it's netflix the next night it's hbo max and that's next night it's disney so right. so from that angle the 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 how many players are in the game to try to get that one or two hours of long let's call it long form content space it's, mm -hmm. it's becoming more challenging to get your thing watched which sure. which is actually opening up hopefully what i want to see is, is more distribution outlets for niche contents you know i don't know it, it, how much you follow with like only fans or stuff like that but like but a lot of com comedians are mm -hmm. finding that that those secondary platforms are a way to kind of get past the the proverbial woke sensors or whatever and start getting back to content that might be a little bit more edgy and a little less PC and a little bit more experimental. Um, so, so I'm inclined to believe that if, the, if, if you put it out there, there's going to be a market for it and people are going to find it. Um, but yeah, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Disney, they're going to have to step up their games to continue to, to appeal to the mass consumers because their consumption habits are changing. That's, that's it. very interesting. Uh, and but you know as a as a lawyer and especially in uh, you know at the beginning of the podcast you tell me all the things you do have you seen huge changes in how content is created on platforms like YouTube like the production values and the cost of production has seems to have gone up or maybe not or maybe there people are just getting better at it without all the the cost people are specializing in it and it's becoming you know like um, I, I tried to do a. a series of TikTok reels from my law firm the other day and filming that style of content is very different from filming TV or long form feature film content. Um, it's just brought in more people and given them, uh, given people uh, ability to specialize in more things. I was talking with a, with a YouTube content creator the other day and the way that he makes, you know, his content is very different from the way my producers make TV and film. Um, so it's kind of just allowed more people to come to the table and, 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 and be, again, be players. Yeah. 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 It's, it's but I mean, I think, you know, for example, I, the, the one that comes to mind is like so people like Mark Rober 
on 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 YouTube is I mean he gets he puts something out and it gets eight million views within the first hour. But it is high value, right? There is a yeah. lot of production, uh, and it, it's kind of interesting to see that that like that was not possible on YouTube twenty years ago. <laughs> But I don't think that is necessary and vital to the YouTube success. You know, there was a point in time, maybe 2017, 2018, when YouTube had the idea that they were going to start to take celebrities and try to build them out channels around themselves, Breed Larson and stuff, um, and put a lot of production value into those YouTube channels, and they didn't do very well. So it's right. not it's not necessarily about the the how much money is on screen. Um, I, I, hot ones has great production quality, but I don't, it probably doesn't have the biggest budget. in the world. No, I bet yeah. you it's really small. I bet you it's just a black yeah. sheet behind them and a couple of lights. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good show. Everyone loves it. Why? Because people love watching people eat and people love watching, you know, celebrities right. talk about gossip. So, right, so, right, so right. For, me, for me as being, you know, someone who was born in the eighties, was really into TV in the nineties was in college in the 2000s and have watched all this, all this kind of ebbed and flowed and changed. I'm thinking we're going to go back to like, we're, we're going to find the new version of Jerry Springer. We're going to find the new version of Ricky Lake. We're going to find, we're going to find resurgences of these trends in a new media consumption style, a la Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, etc. cetera. Um, but what people want to see kind of remains the same time right right and i know you do you do represent influencers as well on, on your yep. right and so how yep. different is representing an influencer versus traditional hollywood talent yeah you know a traditional hollywood talent i'll say there's more of a gentleman's agreement we're all kind of playing in the same industry and it's a very repeat game um the players are constant repeat over and over again and if you step on the toes of one talent you might be stepping on the toes of his spouse or his, his or hers you know whatever and that it might cause a ripple effect and, and you don't want that in the industry so there's a little bit more of a gentleman's game in terms of how we conduct negotiations how we conduct contracts with influence and influencers it's the wild wild west um and brands will explode you know it overnight and and disappear overnight so if if I'm trying to get money for my influencer talent. I'm much more concerned about collecting and timing of payments and making sure that the other side is honoring their um, um, obligations of the contract more than I am with a, you know, a Paramount or a Warner Brothers or a Disney where it's like, yeah, they, they do try to, you know, screw the little guy a little bit, but we can, we can usually rely on them to eventually do the right thing through the, the pressures of, 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 this is just a small town. Hollywood is a much smaller town than the giant influencer brand and advertising world. That's interesting to say as well. Um, okay. One last question for you. I mean, obviously the streaming world has actually been uh, slightly disrupted too. I mean, we've seen Netflix itself sort of scale back. And then once they, you know, put the throttle back, everyone pumped the brakes and it became, but all of a sudden production went down 25% in 2023, just yep. from that little, you know, hiccup. Oh, uh, I know it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, which is interesting in itself. Uh, what has been rumored around here is that the 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 uh, the fast networks, which are free advertising supported <laughs> uh, television, such as Pluto and Tubi and things like that, are going to start to have more influence because that's going to be a more reliable way of getting income uh, on your uh, on your systems what are your thoughts on how that's going to be <laughs> yeah yeah so so I'll, I'll i'll answer that question by asking another question why are the fast channels more viable in terms of of let's just call it profitability or revenue driving and or getting stuff on screen um the answer is is because they've invited back the advertisers um television was built on advertising revenue uh, the right. cold variety hour was really, you know, it was that kind of amalgamation between brands and products and, and television networks and broadcast years that allowed for the proliferation of, of television throughout the aughts and stuff. And once Netflix said, hey, we're kicking out the advertisers, they had to completely start fronting that budget themselves 
Back in the day, if a TV show was made, it was basically funded 50% by the network and they got their revenue from the advertisers and 50% by the studio. So there's kind of a, a sharing of the burden, if you will. Now it's all on Netflix. And if they don't make or recoup or, or sell more subscriptions to make that, make, make that money back, they're not selling additional ad space to kind of pat, pat themselves on the back and, and, and keep up overhead, right? Tubi, Freeform, these other channels, they're bringing in the advertisers and they're getting the money to put things on screen and to keep themselves afloat and maybe have things run more seasons and see what is actually more popular um, and have like the meritocracy of, of content went out. You know, Netflix has great shows, but they'll cancel them in a heartbeat, even if they are wildly popular because they're just too expensive to keep making. Right, right. It's interesting. Interesting. Well, I find this fascinating. Uh, and, you know, we've gone over an hour. I'm sure we'll <laughs> there's going to be more questions. I've, once we put this out there, I'm going to try to see if, uh, if some of our listeners have more questions. And maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have our, uh, you know, uh, every couple of months we'll have <laughs> legal chats <laughs> with Joshua. Yeah. What do you think? If that sounds I'm, good to you, I'd love to have that. <laughs> I, would, I would love to be back again. This is really great. And this is, you know, this is the intersection of everything that I love entertainment, storytelling, tech, business. Um, yeah, yeah, so really cool. All right, well, thank you so much for doing this and hopefully we'll have you back soon. Chris, listeners, thank you so much. Look us up on Instagram at Lasting Law or find us on the website, lastingentertainmentlaw.com. Yeah, great, a good good plug. We'll make sure, and all of that will be on our show notes as well. So uh, you just go to the, to, the, to the episode page and we'll have links for everyone there. All right, well, thank you. Thank you, Chris.